This week on Accent of Woman, we speak with Coral Ann Pullman, a proud Murray woman from far north Queensland. Coral Ann is a youth justice worker in custodial settings whose late ADHD diagnosis as a young adult led her to question the effectiveness of the current education system for Aboriginal children. In 2016, a documentary by Four Corners exposed the institutional abuse of Aboriginal children in Northern Territory youth detention facilities. The investigation showed a series of graphic footages, including strip searches, tear gassing, and in one image that has stayed with many of us, a young Dylan Waller strapped to a chair with a hood over his head. Amnesty International's Champa Patel even likened the image to methods used in Guantanamo Bay. This documentary highlights what many prison abolitionists like Vicky Roach and Angela Davis have been saying for decades, that prisons don't work. On today's episode of Axon, Coral Ann looks at the way the current schooling system impacts Aboriginal children and reimagines a radical approach to education. So my name is Coral. I'm a proud Murray woman from far north Queensland. Um, my family connections are to Yerenji country in Palm Island. My grandmother was born on Palm Island. Um, and now I'm a senior advisor to a program called Cultural Planning, which provides um, cultural support plans that are documents for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children living in out-of-home care. Mm. So those documents kind of just talk about, um, you know, their mother and father's country, their connections to the country that they live on. Uh, and it has a bunch of tasks and goals relating to their health and education and development around um, how to be connected to culture and how to make sure that they're culturally safe um, at, all, at all times in their life. So mm. I give um, advice, I guess, on how to complete those now. That's my job. Mm. And hopefully we'll get to talk about um, the connection, the importance of having connection to community later on. Um, but I wanted yeah. to um, sort of set the background. Um, when yeah. we talk about education, um, are we discussing traditional Western systems or are we arguing uh, for a radical approach to looking at education or maybe both? I think it's definitely uh, both. I think that, you know, we need to be realistic about the fact that we, our children are being forced to thrive or attempting to thrive with the support of the community and their parents in a Western education system. And, you know, that's the kind of the confines that all children, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, are forced to operate within. Mm. So we need to acknowledge whether or not those systems, obviously they don't work for our children, but we need to acknowledge how we can best make them work. But, I mean, a radical overhaul of education is the, the ideal outcome for our children and for all children, I think. I don't think it really works for anybody. Mm. And also, um, because Australia has a long history of excluding Indigenous kids from educational settings, yeah. wh why do you think it's important to recognise leg this legacy of exclusion? I think that it's important to recognise our history as a whole all the time and that understanding Aboriginal children is understanding Aboriginal culture but also understanding the history of colonisation in this country and how painful and detrimental it is and what intergenerational trauma actually looks like for kids in the classroom and in all aspects of their life. Mm -hmm. And if we don't give credit to what our, our people have experienced before our babies have come into someone's classroom, then how are we to understand their experiences and how they learn and how they come to a space? You know, we need to understand how people 
are coming to a space. It's our responsibility to understand that as individuals. But for children, it's important that we acknowledge that with them so that they're able to get the best possible outcome. And do you think more is being done at schools to include, I guess, a more um, black curriculum and also uh, one that's historically accurate? No, I don't, actually. I think quite the opposite. I think that our children have... You know, I had a little girl recently come and say to me, she was not Aboriginal, I actually work with her mum, and she mm. said to me, oh, auntie, you know, they we're doing um, Colonial Day at school. And I thought, I'm sorry? Like, what do you mean? And she thought, we have to dress up as what it would have been like when, you know, the, they first come to discover Australia. I said, hold on, who told you that? She yeah. goes, oh, I told them, auntie, that they didn't discover Australia, you know. So this is a little girl, this non-Aboriginal child has been raised in a very progressive, very honest home who knows that that's not the true history of Australia, but it's still being taught this. In a classroom in Footscray, mind you, in a very mm. multicultural area yeah. that has a majority black children, majority First Nations children from other places, that are still being taught a lie in the classroom. Yeah, and I guess there's been so much literature writ- also written about the importance of having black teachers teach black kids. Um, do you yeah, think, that's exactly right. Do you think that should also be encouraged? Yes, I do. I do think it should be encouraged. Um, I think that at the end of the day... we that we know, um, we know that our people teach our children in the right way. Mm. And I think that's the case for all children. You know, I previously worked in a, in a custodial setting um, with mostly black children. Um, <clears throat> and I had a, a South Sudanese worker come in. She was a teacher. And we were doing, uh, it was, uh, you know, the International um, Women's Day. And we were speaking about women and how important women are for us and about the matriarch and for all people of colour. And I had this South Sudanese teacher say, oh, you know, let's write in our languages, you know, to these South Sudanese boys and just see how liberated they were during those conversations was incredible. You never get to see that, you know, these black kids learning from a black woman Mm. the way that, you know, it was intended societally for us in our society. You know, black women teach us everything that we know. They're the matriarchs of our society. And if our classrooms look like that, I often wonder about the positive impact that that would have if we weren't properly mm. from our women what that would look like yeah exactly I'm thinking back to my own childhood and how much I would have benefited from having black teachers even if they didn't teach me their mere presence at the school would have done exactly so right. much you know having someone that you can actually identify with in your life is so significant and I think you know and I said I just say this the other night in a in a forum um, on this topic that we spend for like children spend like six and a half hours a day out of their out of their parents' homes in a classroom with with people that they can't identify with. And I just think about what the social and emotional impact of that is. And all of this, we talk about pro social modelling for children. What what do they see as black kids? This is how you have to behave. You know, mm. are we whitewashing our children because their their experience is is being taught by people who don't understand them? Mm. You know, and if someone doesn't understand you how can you understand them how are you able to come to that content Mm. in a way that's valuable and important if you're you're not able to you know be on that same level as the person who's supposed to be you know learning you how to how to be an adult and how to achieve things and how to reach all your goals and your full potential if they're not able to understand what that full potential actually is Mm. and speaking about um representation um can you tell us because i've heard this term before but can you explain what the school-to-prison pipeline is? Yeah, so basically it's like, a, you know, you talk about, like, development pipelines in, in work. You know, you have someone in the pipeline to take your job. 
basically for our for our young people, a school to prison pipeline means that you go from the classroom to your justice facility mm. because that that's the path. You know, it's like we set out path for black kids that you go to school and then you're not able to be successful at school for a multitude of reasons of which we, you know most of us are aware of. And then the school becomes a place that quickly becomes very punitive and authoritarian and it begins to, you know, lay down these these rules for your life that you're not able to comply with on the basis of a lack of understanding of yourself as an individual and in your culture. Mm. And then you end up in prison because of going to school, you know? Like, it's not safe. Yeah. That's, that's what that talks about. And it, does that have also something to do with um, this this idea that teachers are these, like, neutral people and they're objective? But does the way... The teachers look at certain kids, um, uh, uh, impact the way students are disciplined and so on? Well, it actually, I've looked at some studies from from the US actually, which Mm. often provide us with some really great, um, you know, I guess kind of quantitative data around the difference in treatment between black and white students. Mm. Um, And in the US, you know, you're more likely, a, a white student is more likely to be I guess, punished for a, a crime or crime or, you know, it's hard to call it a crime. I don't think we should call it mm. that. But for a, a discrepancy or a misdemeanor or whatever, that's actually provable. For example, having drugs in school or for wagging or something like that. Whereas African-American students in the US are usually suspended for behavioural issues, for speaking back or for being a, a pain in the bum, I guess, mm. in the classroom. So these things that are actually you know, more objective than anything else. You actually get to have an opinion about whether or why that happens rather than, you know, something that you can prove, like a child having drugs on on a campus or or something like this. So it's more likely that a a black child won't be in trouble for having drugs on campus or for wagging school or for any of those things, but they will be pulled up about behaviour, which for me is objective. You know, as a teacher, do we understand why, why that's so significant and why it's so important to... Um, move away from from that space and are we, if we understood our children better could we understand why they might have had an issue with that I wouldn't be I wouldn't be upset as a as an Aboriginal woman if my nieces or nephews when discussing colonization or Captain Cook or Australian history said actually I disagree with that and I think you're wrong because of you know ABCD I would want my the children in my family to stand up for themselves and if that mm. was seen as a behavioral issue I would have a big problem with that mm. I feel like the um, school systems are so obsessed with um, managing behaviour. That's their biggest focus. And and when you think about this obsession with m- uh, managing behaviours, it's like they're setting children up to be, um, I guess, obedient to authority. And Well, it's very forceful and it's very punitive. And I think that I wonder, and, you know, I did trial this in, in my time in youth justice, and it sounds a little bit gammon, you know, it sounds a little mm-hmm. bit a bit soft, mm. but, you know, the children, when they, and I, you know, don't refer to them as prisoners, and I just think, like, all of that's terrible. But when a young person would say to me, oh, you know, F off, or I hate you, I said, well, but I love you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I love you, and I'm proud of you, and I think that you're wonderful. And they'd say, oh, you're so ridiculous, Carl, shut up, shut up, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, they know, I still love you. It doesn't matter what you do. Mm. You can set the whole place alight, but I still think that you're deadly. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Like, why, you know, why isn't there, why isn't there an encouragement? Like, why aren't we encouraging kids to think about how to solve disputes? Like, that yeah. should be our focus rather than, you know, you're a bad kid, yeah. you know. Yeah, and how do we get a level of, you know, I guess transformative justice for young people? And why don't we have, you know, dispute resolution mm. for young people the same way as we would have it in a workplace through HR? Through HR, you could behave in any way that you like in a workplace, especially if you're, 
not female and not black. You mm. can pretty much do whatever you like and you'll be sitting in mediation. And I think, what about mediation for our young people? What about sitting down and having a yarn about what made you feel that it was okay to say that or what made you so unhappy that you needed to say that or that you felt that you needed to behave in that way? Mm. And what might we do next time? And how can we understand you better as a little person with you know, all of this knowledge? How do we make that work for you? Mm. And, um, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, no, it seems like a good idea, but unfortunately a lot of children end up in the um, youth justice facilities. Um, can you um, perhaps tell us more about the impact that prison has on a young person's well-being? Well, I think that it's pretty you know, easy to see what outcomes you get from incarcerating a child. You know, the recidivism rate, if you commit a crime in this country between the ages of 16 and 18... You are 85% of that cohort will be in men's prison by the time it's their 19th birthday. So I think that, you know, it obviously doesn't work because mm. 85% of those children are still going to, you know, big boy jail. And that's what we say to the kids, you know, next step is big boy jail. What are we going to do to stop this? How do we break this cycle? But I have seen some atrocious things in those places. And you know what? And I know other people are of a different opinion, but I think that some of these boys, especially our kids, you know, crew kids, mm are in big grown men bodies but have the capacity of a very small child. And if you wouldn't treat a nine-year-old like that, then I struggle to understand why you would treat someone with the capacity of a nine-year-old like that. I don't understand. You know, I I see very Mm. little difference between nine and 13 or, you know, 10 and 16. If if your capacity is the same and you're not able to have that reasoning, you haven't had the pro-social modelling, you know, your brain is still not developed, Mm. why would putting you in, you know, essentially a concrete box impact you positively at all i see no no pro to this i understand that you know the great majority of of society believes that there needs to be you know cause and effect and you need to be punished when you do the wrong thing but i think are we doing anything except for creating better offenders yeah oh that's because it's like it's prisoner university you go and you learn things that you never knew before in your wildest dream and you sit around other people and you make relationships in the community and then they become your community because you're ostracised from your own community. Yeah, and when you think so about... So you create it for yourself. And when you think about how kids are... Um, this, the, the treatment that the kids receive in these youth facilities are the same that they'd receive in adult facilities, like solitary confinement. When you think about kids... Yeah. Um, I don't know if you watched that Dondell documentary. I personally couldn't. Yes. But, you know, you the way you see, the way those kids are treated, like how... Do you expect them to come out of out of it in intact? Well, just, I find it really hard. And, you know, um, young Dylan Voller come out the other side of Dondale deadly. He mm. is so staunch and he is mm. so strong. And for his mob, he is solid, you know. And he has, he has come out and he has been a part of every movement. He has been there at the front line mm. battling like an absolute warrior that he is. But that is, he is, he's in the minority, you know. Because his mob is strong, his family is strong, his mother and his sister are deadly, and he has community all over the country who have got his back. And I wonder if when our, you know, our young people get out, especially our young men, get out, if we gave them that level of support, I am confident that we could have a Dylan Voller out of every one of those kids. We could have a beautiful, strong and staunch young man who's there for his people and is solid for his mob mm. if we gave every kid that level of support.
and on community radio stations right across Australia. You're listening to Axe and a Woman. Did you miss the start of the program? No problem. You can download all episodes of Axon from 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Go to the Axon of Woman page and follow the links. We now return to Coral Ann Pullman to hear her insights on how Australia's education system can better support Aboriginal children. I think people think that, you know, they're real big and nasty and, you know, you've been to prison and you've done this and you've done that. You know, these kids are the sweetest, cleverest little humans that you're ever going to meet in your life. Mm. Like, they're just darlings. I Honestly, it sounds yeah. ridiculous, but I just think, you know, I've had some pretty good yarns with some really fantastic kids that are just so sweet, you know, and they have so much to give. And if you just think, you know, forget for a minute, just try not to think about the thing that they've gotten locked up for, mm. you will find a child who is wonderful at something. I mean, I think it's a difficult thing because I'm no longer in an education space and I did start my career in early education and primary school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in a university degree to be a teacher and I just didn't feel that it fitted my understanding of myself or my understanding of my community. But there are some really, really fantastic people that work for Parkville College. Um, the ex-executive principal of Parkville College, Brendan Murray, is a, is a UN man and he's brilliant, you know, and his um, understanding of of what a child needs in, in an education setting, I think is probably, you know, he's probably the most trusted person in the business, to be honest. I think he knows what's going on. Mm. But for me, there are gaps. And one of the biggest gaps is the justice system not looking at, at being educated whilst incarcerated as, I think it's kind of just like a, it's a bit of a temporary thing, you know? And this is this is my concern. So often when our, our young people are incarcerated, their schools completely retract from their care team. Hmm. You know, I've heard so many conversations where people say, oh, so where are you going to go to school when you get out? Well, why can't they just go to the same school? Yeah. You know, where did that relationship go? You've been going to this school for four years. Your big brother went to this school, your big sister, you know, your big sister's in uni now, she's doing so well. But you can't go to this school because you got locked up one time. Like, why not? It's 100 metres down the road from your house, you know? You make it difficult to access education because, you know, Parkville College is in Parkville and there's other, you know, education, alternative education facilities, but sometimes kids need to travel for these things. And does that mean that they are going to get up every morning at 6 o'clock to get on the train? Probably not if they could just walk 100 metres down the road to go to their school where their friends are and their family is and people know them and they feel safe and comfortable. Why do schools retract from the care team of children when they become incarcerated? Why are they still not involved? You know, where do they go? Yeah. I mean, you think and I think that's a big issue. Yeah. And it, like like you said, you know, they've, connect, they've created all these like connections, bonds, there's history with the school. And like who, who would think it's in the child's best interest to break that kind of connection that they have, the only stability exactly. that they have? Yeah. Well, it doesn't make sense, you know, and I think that as a, as a whole we need to look at these alternative learning settings in incarceration as, you know, just an interim period kind of um, situation. And Parkville College is very open and very honest and willing to do what they need to do to make sure that children are safe, educated and happy and and are achieving what they can achieve. So I see no gap in Parkville College teachers' willingness to bring on the curriculum from a school and to support a child to complete the same curriculum that they would be completing if they were still in their mainstream school down the road from their house. Mm. There is no 
feedback or, you know, pushback from, from those staff to be able to do that for kids. They want what's best for kids. Mm. I think if you're a person who's going to come and be an educator in Parkville, in a youth justice or Malmesbury or in any, in any of those spaces, you need to be, I think, a little bit forward-thinking and probably a little bit alternative to a mainstream system because you need to imagine yourself in that setting being successful. So you need to believe that it's possible to be a successful teacher in that space. And being a successful teacher is your children feeling culturally safe in that space and feeling able and feeling confident and being able to dream a little bit, you know. And I think that's the thing that education gives to kids in incarceration. I would never suggest that that was something that needed to be removed or or anything like that. But I think it gives them that little bit of an ability to have a little bit of a goal and to have a dream and to think a little bit more than I get out in three months, I get out in two months, I get out in 10 days. It's about saying when I go back to school, yeah, you know, and when we get that language, when I go back to my school, this is what I'm going to do. That's what we want for for those kids. And I think Parkville College has really got that fight in them and it is a hard job. I just, it's a hard job, Mm. but I think they've got that fight in them. And and when the kids come out of the um, the facilities um, upon release, um, how do we support how do we support their um, I guess educational future? I think we need to stop rejecting them from society to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we kind of treat them like you know the diseased, and if we we hang out with these kids or if we give time to these children, then it, they will go they will be locked up again, or mm-hmm. might reflect badly on the school or or whatever. You know, you want to be the school that takes in the most difficult kid in the state and makes him safe. That's what you want. You want to be that school. You want to be that principal. You want to be that classroom teacher. And you want to be that community cohort of other students. You know, there's, I, don't, I just cannot see another mm. student going, oh, we don't want that person back. You know, it mm. doesn't go like that. They're kids. Yeah, you know, they, don't, they don't think in the same way as adults do. But I just think that we need to actually love them up properly yes. for them to want to come to school. Who wants to come to school if they're going to be treated like a criminal? They did their time. They did what they needed to do. We're not going to further punish them on the basis of them having already been punished. Absolutely. And and, and kids are so intelligent. Um, like, they know when someone doesn't want them around. So even exactly. though... They're just it, smarter than growing up. Oh, like. my God. Heaps. They're so intuitive. Like, they know. Exactly right. Like, a teacher doesn't have to say, you know, I don't want you to be here. The, the, they can feel the, the vibrations. The kids pick up on these things and... And that's it, right. And I think black kids in particular, because at the end of the day, like, you know, we have Aboriginal people, you know, 80,000 years of of inherent culture and understanding. Mm. And when somebody doesn't want you around or somebody doesn't understand you or somebody throws you, you know, people throw you those vibes, you know, that you're not a safe person for me to be around. They make that really clear. They don't have to say anything to you. Why mm. would you go, you know? And I've had kids sit and try to explain to me, oh, you know, I just don't like them. I just can't go there, you know, and I think that's what that is. That's what they're telling me. You don't make them feel comfortable. He might not have the words to say, I think this person is inherently racist or I think that I'm being further punished for a crime I've already done my time for. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh, that person, I'm not, I'm not into that person. I don't like that person's vibe, you know. And we need to listen to our children when they say this stuff to us. Are you the right person to be in the classroom? Does the teacher need to go and the child needs to stay? Hmm. Is that is that the flip here? Hmm. And, you know, like it makes it sound like oh, teachers are awful, and they're not. Teachers are, are brilliant people, and we owe them, you know, everything. Yeah, and they are, you know, they, they raise our kids six and a half hours a day, so we want to make sure they're the right people. Absolutely, and and is is there a way to support teachers? Like, what can we do for the good teachers, the teachers who um, are in it for the long run? How do we support them? To be honest, I think everything is top down. Okay. 
um, I feel like a lot of teachers on the ground want to do all of the right things and they feel that pushback from the principal and the curriculum and the education department and, and all of those things. But I think having, and I spoke about this a little bit the other night, but I think having, you know, a relationship with the Aboriginal community whose, you know, country you work on, you need to have those relations and be able to call up auntie and say, I'm having these problems, are you able to help me? Can you come in and sit in the classroom? Can you help me advocate for this child? Or, you know, do you know your Kesso? Do you know all of the black fellas around you to be able to help you get what you know you need for that child? Where is that care team? And it's not the black person's responsibility to set that up. It's not the Aboriginal people's community responsibility to set that stuff up. You know, we already have 230 years of, of unpaid labour and, mm. you know, unpaid rent and all of these things. So they need, to, they need to come into the space and they need to be willing and wanting to learn. I know that it can be a little bit daunting and a little mm. bit frightening and all of those things, but you need to come to a space and be willing to open your arms to the community and your classroom because mm. that's how you're going to get the best outcome. And this goes for every every person, for every child of colour in this country. Mm. I wonder the impact of having someone that's like them in their space to support them. Mm. Yeah, and um, finally, but obviously not last, I'm so my background, I'm Somali and, you know, there's so much emphasis in my community put on culture, on tradition. Um, I'm guessing it's the same way with your community. Can you tell yes. us why that is important and why we should invest in cultural programs? Well, culture is everything for our children. It's what keeps them grounded. You know, we have nothing without our old people, without our culture, without our stories, without our languages. And every time we give a piece of that information to our children or our old people give that information to us, it makes us stronger. It consolidates our identity and makes us know that regardless of where we are or what's happening, we are always on someone's country. We're always on Aboriginal country. We are always solid and our mob is always there, even if we are incarcerated, even if we are away from our family. It lets us know that we have 80,000 years of culture and stories and song lines that is going to keep us solid. Mm-hmm. I think that's, to me, what's, what's most important. And I don't want to see, you know, kids incarcerated losing their identity. And, you know, I've seen it in, you know, um, a lot of other communities of colour in this country and had a South Sudanese boy... Um, come into Barwon and you know he was raised in a white foster family he was an unaccompanied minor and his uncle was also incarcerated there mm. a year apart and he said to him you know who who are you you know and we would say like who's your mob you know, yeah. <laughs> who are you where from but he didn't know and then he said you know what church do you go to and he said oh, I don't go to church he said you know who's your mother because I don't know mm. you know so this kid had been like you know colonized yeah. like properly colonized Sounds in Australia like no language doesn't speak any language at all, only speaks English. Yeah. It's all gone. And this child, you'd see him in the street and go, oh, you know, he's South Sudanese. Like, how are you going? You know, his name says that he's South Sudanese. Yeah. And then you listen to him speak and he knows nothing about his culture. He has no roots. He has nothing to ground him and no one to keep him strong. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that community of young people opened their arms to him and said, bro, we'll teach you. No, we'll teach you how to speak language. You want to speak Arabic, we'll teach you how to speak oh, Arabic as well. You know, so as soon as they opened their arms to this young fella... He mm. was all good. You know, that's his uncle. And his uncle was there for him 100%. You know, I've got you. Mm. I'm going to give you this knowledge. And he became a, like, oh, he was just, I just love this kid. Yeah, I love them all. But <laughs> he I just, he was so bloody cute. You know, he looked like he was four years old in a big man's body. He was oh. just a, a sweet little baby. But he became, like, really funny and really friendly mm. and really willing and open. And he would muck around. He used to be this serious, serious little boy, you know, real grumpy looking. I said to him all the time, he looks so grumpy. What's wrong, you know? get that look off your face and as soon as these 
men, his men, his people, brought him into their circle and let him be a part of it. He had a place. Mm. Everybody needs a place. And I think white people search for this in societies in, in, in different ways, you know. Mm. They go to in India. In church groups or... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, literally. That's in church shame. groups or in, in community groups or whatever it is that they do. You know, everybody needs a community. Mm. We have that in our bloodline and we deserve that in our lives, in our daily lives, in our day-to-day. Not just Monday to Friday when it's convenient for for our teachers to talk to us about our culture. It's ours forever. We don't have to earn it. And, and no one should make us earn it. That's an incredible note to end on. Thank you so much, Carol. And that was Coral Ann Pullman, a proud Murray woman from far north Queensland. Coral Ann is a youth justice worker and shared her insights on the current education system and its impact on Aboriginal kids. Accent of Woman is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear the show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au, go to the Accent of Woman page and follow the links to this week's show. I'm Ayan Shirwat.